The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Physical education has been cut back for decades. So too have public recreation facilities been reduced. A wide swath of working-class Americans live in fitness deserts, which means too far to reasonably walk to a public park. The neighborhoods that can use these free facilities most often have the least access. Good morning, everyone. I'm Michael Kavnat, and this is the next Big Idea Daily. And I'm wondering, have you gotten your workout in today? Did you strap on your running shoes when you got out of bed this morning? Or are you pumping iron right now while listening to this podcast? No judgments either way, but whether or not you're a fitness junkie, you've surely noticed that a lot of people around you are. Our national obsession with exercise shows no signs of letting up, even though statistically, Americans are less fit, more obese, and more sedentary than people in many other countries. Joining us to help understand this paradox and maybe get us moving again is Natalia Melman Petrozella, author of the new book, Fit Nation, the Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Natalia is a professor of history at the New School in New York City, and she's a co-host of the Past Present Podcast. Here she is to share some of her big ideas. Mind and body are inseparable, and cultivating both is integral to our well-being. So Americans fight about a lot of things, so much so that one of the most common ways to describe our society is in terms of division, as polarized, riven by culture wars, or torn apart by partisanship. There's good reason for that. My first book traced the bitter fights over educational politics that are still very much with us today. But when I turned to study fitness and wellness culture in the United States, I found that during the very same period, from about the 1960s to the present, Americans have been almost entirely unified in agreement in the belief that mind and body are connected and that it's imperative that we as individuals take initiative to cultivate both. Now, this is an idea that's widespread today, but it just started to be so widely accepted in that era. In progressive spaces like feminist health centers or Black Panther medical clinics, the idea that communities marginalized by the dominant medical establishment could take control of their own well-being, and sometimes through alternative therapies like yoga or acupuncture, this was a powerful form of self-determination. On the other hand, I found almost the same rhetoric about mind and body integration and the importance of individuals kind of taking control of that process embraced on conservative Christian college campuses. There, the idea was just as resonant, in part because of the focus on personal responsibility for one's health through discipline and willpower and kind of these ideas that we associate with a conservative worldview. So across the political and cultural spectrum, Americans have come to rare agreement that claiming agency over one's well-being, body and mind, is crucial to a life well-lived. And I agree. Third places are crucial to human thriving. Sociologist Ray Oldenburg coined the term third place to describe the spaces between work and home where people find community, leisure, and social interaction. In short, where we make meaning of our lives. 
When I set out to write a book about exercise culture, I did not realize how important this concept of the third place would be and how much the gym has served as one of those third places. This holds true across the board. Exhausted young mothers in the 1970s would head to jazzercise centers, which provided childcare, to spend an hour dancing and sweating together. Their time together before and after class just as important as the main event. Gloria Steinem once wrote that the locker room in these kinds of environments tended to foster an instant sisterhood. That's a third place. Similarly, at the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, gay men, often ostracized in a moment of intense homophobia, found solace at gyms and health clubs that, one, allowed them to bulk up to show they were not sick, and two, functioned as community centers and even art museums and mutual aid societies. The example of these third places abound, from jogging clubs to yoga classes to fitness-themed retreats. Today, in an era of declining religious participation, online shopping, and most recently, of course, the coronavirus pandemic, this has never been more true. Through advanced streaming technology, we're now able to burn as many calories in our living rooms as at the gym. But there's a reason that running clubs came back especially quickly in the pandemic, and that now brick-and-mortar fitness businesses are seeing rebounding membership numbers. Exercise for a huge swath of those who participate is about much more than the physical exertion. The gym, broadly construed, is absolutely a third place, and we need more of them. Expertise isn't everything. I spent seven years in grad school getting a PhD, and now as a college professor, I spend a lot of my time equipping students with the body of knowledge and skills they need to receive a bachelor's or master's degree in history. So yes, I do believe in the importance of expertise, traditionally defined. But writing this book, I learned that some of the most important and exciting insights and breakthroughs don't necessarily happen in a university lab or archive or at the hands of people with loads of letters after their names. The birth of the fitness industry, not that long ago in the 1960s and since, is very much such a story. Take Bonnie Pruden, a 1950s homemaker and outdoors woman who noticed the children in her community seemed sluggish and putting on weight. But there were no studies to confirm this or even really scholars interested in or paying attention. She teamed up with a doctor friend to do their own comparative assessment with European children. And they took their findings all the way to the White House, ultimately sparking the physical education policy that still shapes PE curriculum today. Similarly, in 1966, running coach Bill Bowerman teamed up with Phil Knight, with whom he had a fledgling running shoe business that they first sold out of the back of cars. They wrote a book extolling the virtues of jogging, but it was very thin because there was no research yet to make the claim that cardio is good for you. Yet this little book inspired millions to lace up and take to the streets and propelled Bowerman and Knight ultimately to found Nike. Or another example, Molly Fox, a dancer who established an exercise studio in New York City in the early 1980s that became a global destination for fitness enthusiasts and instructors seeking the most innovative programming. Molly went on to become an international presenter and an educator on the fitness conference circuit, but when she began, it didn't even exist. She told me that to get inspired, she'd roam the aisles of the Strand Bookstore to page through dance and anatomy books. It was really the Wild West, she said. So tracing the origins of an industry really reminded me that expertise doesn't begin with a diploma or institutional recognition. It begins with a spark of inspiration. 
which anyone can possess. Fitness is a social justice issue. Some people turn their nose up at fitness pursuits as leisure pastimes of the affluent, and some of its fanciest versions absolutely are that. But scratch the surface, and I found an overwhelming consensus among people that movement and exercise are absolutely crucial to living a healthy, fulfilled life. That's the attitude that fuels a $25 billion fitness industry in this country that grows every year. So why do only 20% of Americans get the federally recommended amount of exercise? And why are more affluent Americans so overrepresented in that group? It comes down to the fact that even as we celebrate exercise as crucial to health and happiness, we make it far more accessible to those who can afford it. Sure, the industry is booming, but physical education has been cut back for decades. So too have public recreation facilities been reduced. A wide swath of working-class Americans live in fitness deserts, which means too far to reasonably walk to a public park. And even when the park or trail is there, it's not always clean, well-lit, or safe. The neighborhoods that can use these free facilities most often have the least access. During the pandemic, for example, Jamel Ali set up an open-air gym in Harlem's Marcus Garvey Park, training teens, elderly people, and whoever wanted to join in. He hung boxing bags from trees and stored kettlebells under a tarp. The New York Times described his gym as a refuge from a neighborhood that had high rates of both crime and illness. But the police shut him down for operating without a permit. In another related case I write about, in Chicago, a teenager named Vincent Gonzalez is busted for repeatedly sneaking into a gym franchise location to lift weights and play basketball. This case ends reasonably well, with the cop being so touched by Vincent's athletic commitment that he buys him a gym membership, but it misses the bigger point. We rightly believe exercise is imperative to a good life, but it's mostly available on a private market and only to those who can afford it. We've got to reframe and realize that fitness is not a luxury. It's a social justice issue. In writing and in exercise, no opportunity is too small to make progress. Once upon a time, I was a person with a lot of control over her time, and I was especially deliberate about exercise and writing. I'd go on long training runs or travel across town to try a new yoga class. I'd block out weeks for archival trips, and then I'd spend hours writing without interruption, listening to the perfect playlist and sipping coffee from my favorite mug. Each of these pursuits energized me to pursue the other. I had a system. That is not how this book took shape. I researched and began to write while teaching full-time and raising two small children. Still, I had childcare and lived in New York City with plenty of exercise options blocks from my home. Busy, but fine. But then the pandemic hit. I scrambled to move my courses online and had more than half the book left to write. Plus, two kids on Zoom school and beyond my husband, also working from home, no support in caring for them or our home. Then I got a femoral stress fracture that had me limping around with a cane. Ugh. For a few weeks, I all but abandoned the manuscript and any attempt at movement beyond shuffling around the house. If I couldn't immerse in the intense way I was used to, I didn't want to do anything. Soon, mostly due to my looming contract and worsening mood, I began to pull myself into a new routine. I may have only 45 minutes in the morning before the kids got up, but I'd rise earlier, forcing myself to write straight through, even if the words on the page made me cringe. The kids might have only 20 minutes of overlapping Zoom school, but I'd commit to do any little bit I could, fix a footnote, refine a messy sentence. 
As my leg healed, I took the same approach to exercise, doing a few sets of knee push-ups to build upper body strength, or just walking the two-mile loop I once used for speed work. Surprising no one more than me, I finished the book and got back to running half marathons and even teaching fitness. Just months earlier, I would have said just 20 minutes of writing or exercise wasn't worth it, because what could you really get done? I learned the hard but ultimately invaluable way that no opportunity is too small to move forward, and big achievements begin with small steps, sometimes because there is no other choice. Thank you, Natalia. That was Natalia Melman Petrozella with some big ideas from Fit Nation, the gains and pains of America's exercise obsession. Something to think about on the treadmill, right? Another thing to think about, joining the Next Big Idea Club. Probably the most powerful thing about the club is the curation. Our curators, Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, and Adam Grant, they comb through the hundreds of nonfiction titles that come across their desks every year, and they pick out the best, most interesting and useful ones, which we then mail directly to your door. Check it out at nextbigideaclub.com. And one of those curators, Wharton School professor Adam Grant, is going to be with us on the podcast tomorrow to share some ideas from his recent number one New York Times bestseller, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. If you haven't already read it, and even if you have, you're in for a special treat tomorrow when Adam stops by to share his key insights. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you tomorrow.